Cuba in conversation. What is new? Social changes and institutional reforms in Cuba. This is the podcast Cuba in Conversation from the Jean Monnet Network, Europe Cuba Forum, and the Albert Hirschman Center on Democracy. The Europe Cuba Forum is an initiative that began in 2017 and involves a consortium of 11 leading institutions with consolidated experience in researching Cuban affairs and relations between Europe and Cuba. I am Janina Well. And together with experts on the topic in this series, we will offer a window into the current situation from institutional, political, and social perspectives. Cuba has experienced a myriad of reforms as well as multicausal crises and tensions in the past years. There's not enough food, medicine, or fuel. The economy is broken. Even with a job, it's hard for most Cubans to buy the basics. And then throw in a pandemic. People, they're tired. In the previous decades, Cuba has gone through many changes. In 2008, Fidel Castro stepped down after almost 50 years in power. Before he became 90 years old, Raul Castro resigned and passed the lead to Miguel Díaz-Canel generating high expectancies among the population. Poco antes de cumplir los 90 años, Raúl Castro decide jubilarse de forma oficial y ceder la dirección del Partido Comunista a alguien más joven. La palabra al diputado Miguel Mario Díaz-Canel, presidente de los Consejos de Estado y de Ministros. Compañeras y compañeros, en este momento de profunda y sentida emoción, agradezco En nombre de todos los que hemos sido elegidos como miembros de este Consejo de Estado, la confianza depositada. This was the first time in more than 70 years without a Castro in this position. Una persona muy preocupada, revolucionario. Muy inteligente, muy capaz. Como es una persona más nueva, una persona joven, ahora puede cambiar, revolucionar más el país. Tenemos esperanza de lo que, que cualquiera que sea el, el, el cambio, que siempre va a ser para bien. Digamos que no cometa los mismos errores que cometió el anterior. A constitutional replacement produced with massive citizen participation was conducted. The new constitution was ratified in a referendum in February 2019. However, waves of protest emerged shortly after. A massive protest movement broke out in Cuba. An unprecedented display of anger and frustration in the streets of Cuba. Miles de personas marcharon para protestar por la falta de libertades y por la paupérrima situación económica. Nosotros merecemos vivir, merecemos un futuro. Which kind of changes introduced the new constitution and to what extent has contributed to solve economic, social and political deficits observed in the island? This is the focus of the first episode of Cuba in Conversation. Robert Hoffman, I'm a political scientist working at the German Institute of Global Area Studies and also professor at the Freie Universität Berlin. And I've been part of the Fora Europa Cuba project. I've been traveling to Cuba quite a bit on that occasion. Let us start at the beginning with the new government of Díaz-Canel and the approval of the new constitution. The government is not about fundamental change. 
its main slogan was continuity. And so the question is, has there been change? And yes, there has been change, but there's also been continuity. So the yes, kind of government continued with the economic reform project, although on a slow and gradual and somewhere stop and go type of process. And that in the midst of the COVID pandemic, of course, was quite difficult. But we had a monetary reform, which didn't work well, but which was done. We had an opening for small and private, small and medium-sized private enterprises, which have now more space than before legally. And we also had some opening on foreign investment and foreign trade. So there has been change, limited though. So in your view, there are no fundamental changes, but continuity and some openings, particularly in the economy. But what about the legitimacy of the government? The Cuban government is taking its legitimacy from the historic process of the revolution rather than from electoral ratifications. The electoral ratifications are in a single party system. So that really wouldn't tell you much if they win elections because there's no competition. Evidently, this historic legitimacy has been eroding greatly, not only under this present government, but over the last month of legitimacy. And he has many people leaving the island, especially young people. But this does not mean that any other project has competing legitimacy that would be there to say, well, this is the alternative project the government still pursues kind of the same type of legitimation as it has over the past six years. And now without the figures of Fidel and we're already on the old age in old age, but it's the same type of historically legitimizing the revolutionary process and the confrontation with the United States, which argues that there is just no other option to defend Cuban nation, nationalism, Cuban, the Cuban nation, than to stick with the present. There is no competition. Many people are leaving the island, but no other project is clearly disputing this legitimacy. What about the Communist Party in this scenario? There is no other party, and the Communist Party is not the only actor in the, in the country. Of course not. Power is being upheld by a trias of the Communist Party, the military, and the state apparatus. There are social organizations in favor of the regime or, or bottom top-down organizations such as the trade unions and other and there's some civil society that is at the margins or even independent of the regime but the crucial key actor in policy making and the political structure remains the communist party with political at the helm very much intertwined with the military these are not Opposite for all senior generals are part of the military. Yeah. So there's no question the Communist Party remains the backbone of the political system in close alliance with the military. The military has a prominent role in the state apparatus and the Communist Party remains at the core of the regime. But let's go back to something you mentioned before about the narrative to defend the revolutionary government. You said that it somehow remains the same. We can take a particular example to observe how it is translated into concrete policies. Look at the healthcare system, for instance, that has been a source of particular pride for Cuba's revolution, but at the same time is not exempt 
from the profound crisis the Iceland is undergoing. The devaluation of salaries has led many qualified workers to abandon the sector. Investment in maintenance and modernization have fallen below and the pandemic has deepened all these problems. In this hard context, Cuba has been one of the very few countries to develop its own vaccines against COVID-19. You have a research project on this process. Has this been a successful strategy? I think the fact is very remarkable that Cuba did develop its own anti-COVID vaccines. It's very unique in that. And the vaccines are kind of old school technology, but they worked. They did do the job on the island to that a vaccination campaign that was very complete, one of the most complete vaccination campaigns in the world. And this is, I think, a remarkable achievement when actually so many of the Western pharmaceutical companies, the big names, you know them all, whatever, they did not, they were not up to the task. They didn't get vaccines done. We had some, we had BioNTech, we had AstraZeneca, but very few actually. And then little does manage to get vaccines. So that made me kind of, I think there should be a lot of respect paid to that achievement, even if the vaccines are not perfect, but no vaccines are perfect. The tragic side, of course, is that they came too late to prevent the Delta wave hitting Cuba in a disastrous way. And Cuba did have a partial breakdown of its health system and a very high death toll in the wake. So it's not that everything is glorious about the, the, how Cuba managed the COVID pandemic, but still it's, I think, a remarkable feat that should be recognized perhaps more than it is that Cuba did develop its own and working vaccines and had a very, very impressive vaccination record. Health and education were the banners that brought international recognition to Cuba's development model. However, this seems a distant past, and the country is facing waves of protests related to economical, social, and political claims. We have Rosa Bogón. She has been professor of sociology at the University of Havana, and now is pursuing a postdoc in Europe. Her main research topics are social policies, migration, and social inequalities. Rosa, to what extent poverty and inequalities are growing in Cuba? and what the government does to prevent its worsening. So, measures of poverty and inequality in Cuba are not publicly available. Across Latin American countries, household surveys are an essential tool for delineating the poverty index, and Cuba regularly produces this kind of information through the National Institute of Statistics. However, many Cuban scholars do not know if this data is used to access vulnerable or poor groups and how it impacts social policy design and implementation. It is expected that poverty and inequalities are growing in qualitative terms, which is now explained just by the current inflation rates. It combines the post-pandemic context and the accumulated unresolved political and economic dilemmas at the core of Cuban society's challenges for the last 30 or 40 years. Therefore, it is necessary to assess poverty and inequality at grassroots levels in numbers. So Cuba does not have trustable measures of poverty and inequalities, but there is a clear evidence that are growing and affecting more portions of the population. Which processes are behind the perception of growing inequalities? 
there is no doubt of at least three seemingly interconnected processes that are behind the perceptions of this phenomenon increased in the Cuban context. First, I would say the federalization of the economy brings high taxation of goods and essential products. So it is not just about the impoverishment of the working class and barriers for the private sector. It is mainly about accessibility and capacity to solve basic needs. Secondly, the narrow channels for economic inclusion where the people taking more advantage of the measures implemented in recent months could be potentially those with closer connections to power and capacity building within the Cuba, captive market rules and the government for functioning. And thirdly, though less explored, the lack of political participation has become a critical variable I think that the strengthening of channels for inclusion politically and massive incarceration of vulnerable and poor groups bring new key features towards understanding the suffering and deprivation of those families already living in extreme conditions after the 11 July protests. In terms of official recognized, uh, recognition of poverty or not, I will say that the government has taken steps to deal with the impoverishment across Cuban society more than a formal recognition itself of this problem. During the mid-90s and in 2000, with the Batalla de Idea programs, the emphasis was to develop policy initiatives to recover equal justice. It was a period during which social work finally reached some recognition as an instrumental career path in dealing with the social question. Some official documents even explicitly mention vulnerable and disadvantaged family. Cuban scientists still talk about the distinct pressure of poverty with levels of protection and security for the Cuban case, referring to the formal access to universal policies such as health, education, culture, and sport, as you mentioned before. However, there is a little debate about the growing marketization and informal channels to secure access to these policies that explain gaps within the universal infrastructure and the levels of inequality and exclusion these mechanisms produce across the Cuban population. Some attempts to measure poverty and inequality have been developed inside and outside the island. Two foreign scholars, Symbolis and Brondenius, declare a Gini coefficient of 0 0.24 and poverty rates of 6.6% of the population at the end of the 80s. The National Institute of Economics, INE, for its abbreviation in Cuba, affiliated with the Cuban Economy Ministry, suggested that a slight increase of 0.38 for the Gini coefficient and 20% of the human population in poverty during the first decade of this century. The public data about poverty and inequalities inside Cuba is more than 20 years. Specifically, the measure of inequality is a big gap between the Cuban scholars and those known as Cubanologists outside the island. Rosa speaks about the lack of political participation 
drives us to talk about the wave of protests emerging on 11th July 2021 that surprises the world by the extension and characteristics of these protests were the largest anti-government demonstrations since the Malekonazo in 1994. It was not only, but mainly connected to the living conditions. So we wonder what the government does to prevent the growth of poverty. All these problems with poverty, inequality, so on and so forth. To prevent worsening, the government has built a provision of disconnected and fragmented programs. From my perspective, the main difficulty is the lack of evaluation and impact accountability. While the progressist wave in Latin American governments during the first 10 years of this century, social expenditure grew dramatically. The Cuban cases of a study in producing numbers at the same period. After massive spending in the Batalla de Ideas program by the end of 2006 and 2007, the Cuban government reduced the financial support for social assistance. New programs have emerged recently, like subsidies to renovate houses, a national program for community social service that includes older adults and food provision, monetary support for families with children or people with special needs, and monetary support to buy the products provided everyone by the government, among others. The social and labor observatory is also, is also advancing building a new multidimensional vulnerability index to measure the incidence of poverty. I hope it allows for a closer analysis of rural poverty and a more intersectional approach to poor and vulnerable individuals and families. Despite these efforts, however, the situation is not getting any better. The ongoing migratory wave, in addition to thousands of political prisoners and fewer opportunities for economic inclusion, makes me think that we need to relocate the focus to improve these problems. We must articulate a demand for more state protection in tackling poverty and inequalities. And the elaboration and co-production of appropriate narratives, I think is an essential part in producing a broader discussion that moves the Cuban civil society beyond the current levels of deprivation to the center of the political conversation. The situation is not getting any better because of migration, political prosecution, and worsening of the living conditions, says Rosa. Bert, in your policy brief, Institutional Reform and Social Policies in Post-COVID Cuba, an Agenda for Cooperation, you suggest that the most promising conceptual mindset for dialogue and cooperation can be found in the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Why and how? I mean, the biggest change was an overall politics at the global level. The European-Cuban rapprochement came as part or in the wake of the U.S. rapprochement with Cuba. We had the Obama government reaching out to Havana as kind of never before any U.S. administration has done. We had Obama visiting Havana. We had a very, very different perspective. And in that wake, also the European Union went to foster kind of a more dialogue-oriented approach. This all came 
to an end with the Trump administration, which brought back the whole Cold War confrontation between Washington and Havana. And in that context, also the European project of more dialogue-oriented approach did not have any any fertile ground to move forward on the big political level. And having said that, the end-European joint dialogue engagement policies were extremely successful in bringing about a new perspective to for change on the ice, so getting out of this kind of militarized confrontation logic which dominate the external as well as the internal politics of Cuba. And it's a big shame that this has not been able to move on. I think we would have much, much more change in Cuba and much more pressure within Cuba to seriously go on a reform course and not only economic economic reforms, but also pressure for social opening if that policy would have continued. The EU side, of course, is much less important than those. Our set of goals, measures, both sides share that Havana endorses and that the European Union endorses. So that is a fruitful starting point if you want to achieve something. If you start with the regime question and say it must be democracy, multi-party system, then you may be perfectly right morally or whatever, but the other side will not will not join join the dialogue because the political system will be very eager to work on its own demise. So the UN development goals have a lot of social goals, but there's also governance, there's good governance, there's a lot of goals which really imply change also in the process of how things are being done. And you could come to this type of questions, which would be quite challenging to, to deal with in the lateral dialogue between Europe and, and Cuba, but you would have a starting point if you have a mind set on a, on a frame of goals that are not divisive, but that in principle are shared, and then you can discuss how you go about it and where the differences are. So that's basically the idea to get out of the stalemate if you, if you just talk about democracy and human rights, and on the other side will say imperialism and don't meddle in our affairs, and we can continue that type of, of sterile and discussions between the two sides forever and ever. And, and some may want that, but if you want to have some more fruitful dialogue, then I think the end would provide a very good framework to start. We are arriving at the end, so we can go back to our main question. What is new in Cuba from a social and institutional approach? Despite there was a renovation in the government, at least in what refers to the leading phases, and there is a new constitution in force, there is no political competition in the island, and institutional changes were not so radical. At the same time, there is no pluralism, and the Communist Party remains as the main ruler. In the next episode, we will focus on the economical reform, but we could already anticipate from the interviews today that the situation is worsening for the population and the government not only is not doing enough, but also is lacking trustable statistics to develop accurate social policies. The vaccine was a success in scientific terms, but arrived too late to prevent the pandemic and the casualties. On the other side of the spectrum, social claims emerge in waves of protests which have not been heard by the government. 
this context has also affected the economy of the island. My thanks to Bert Hoffman and Rosa Maria Bogon for their participation. For more information about the project, you can visit the website www.foreuropacuba.org. I am Janina Well, Research Fellow at the Albert Hirschman Center on Democracy, and along with other experts from the Jean Monnet Network Europe Cuba Forum, we explore institutional, economic, and global recent developments in Cuba and potential future path for the country. Join us in a brand new on any podcatcher of your choice by searching Cuba in Conversation. And subscribe so you can get the latest updates on our episodes and our research.